All right. Thank you so much, Ben and company, and uh, thank you again for being here this morning. If you're listening online later, thank you for doing that. Welcome to part three of a five-part series on the the life of Moses. Uh, If you had been with us for two weeks, you know kind of where we're at in this story. And our friend Moses has killed a man. Never a good thing to do in the early part of your life. That can tend to define a life. And now he has run in fear from what Pharaoh is going to do to him. Now the reason that we're even talking about the person of Moses is that we believe that we can learn something about God and ourselves from this man Moses, from a great leader like he was in different stages in our life. And so this is where we dropped off this man Moses last week, that God kind of came to him and said, Moses, I want you to come back and I want you to do something great for me. I want you to move the people in uh, Egypt out of slavery which is a good thing to do. Now, this morning, in order to set up where we want to go this morning, I want to ask you a question. And here's the question I want to ask you. What does it take to be great? What does it take, you think, to be great? Muhammad Ali, one of the famous things he said, I am the what? I am the greatest. I can't say it like I'm not even close to Muhammad Ali. I am the greatest. Right? I mean, you say that, but I might argue that actually Mother Teresa might have been greater than Muhammad Ali, but couldn't hold a candle to him in the ring. In fact, I can certainly guarantee you that Parkinson's was greater than Muhammad Ali, who died last year, right? Like, yeah, you're great, but you're not the greatest. Are you like, what makes you great? Like, even Michael Jordan cut from his high school basketball team. I don't know if you knew that. He was cut from the team. He turned out to be pretty good at what he did, right? So what makes somebody great? Is it just a work ethic? Man, is it just, I'm going to keep shooting, I'm going to keep working out and keep training? Is it work ethic? Is it intellect? Is it perseverance? Is it character? And what is it, what is it that really makes someone great? Think about that for a minute. What is it that actually makes you great? All right? Like, look, you want, look, look here, you, you want, in your life, to be great at what you do. Like, whether you put it in those words or not, you want to have a marriage that isn't just okay, but it is actually great. At least at some point in your life, you wanted that, right? Like, you want to find a career and a future that is going to be great, that's going to be rewarding, is going to be, bring you joy. Like, you want that. Whether you put it in those words or not, you want that. You want relationships with other people that are going to be great. Like you don't want the average and declining relationships. You want a future that's going to be great in whatever way you talk about that, whether that means great because I'm submitted to God and His will and He's leading me in whatever way that that is, that can be great. Or maybe for you that means I'm going to be financially free and that's great. Maybe that means we're going to have 9,000 children, right, and live in northern Idaho with a million acres. Like maybe that's great for you. I don't know how in the world. Anyway, but who knows, right, what your version of great is, but each one of us has a desire to have a great life and have a great experience. Like we want to be, quote-unquote, great. We may or may not care if our name is ever up in lights or if everyone ever knows our name. Not that kind of great, but we want to experience the greatness of what life provides. And so what in the world does it take to be great? That's the question on the table this morning because in the life of Moses now, we are hitting the pinnacle of his career and the thing that he becomes known for. And I want to show you two elements of greatness today, one in the life of Moses and one through our God. 
I want to show you Moses' greatness, and I believe that his greatness is attainable for you and for me. But I also want to show you God's greatness, which is far beyond what we can even ever attain ourselves. So if you have a Bible, I want you to jump into the story with me in the life of Moses. We're going to go into the, the book of Exodus this morning, which is the second book in your Bible. It begins in Genesis and then Exodus. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew near you. By the way, that's our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, we'll be glad to have you take that with you. And we're going to be reading um, beginning at chapter 5 in the book of Exodus. Um, Reading from the NIV 1984 version here this morning. All right, so coming off of verse or chapter 4, just to set the context again, because jumping into chapter 5 is really important to know where we were in chapter 4. To, to finish off where we were, and here, here's the context Moses has finally gone back to Egypt, and he gathered the elders of the Is- Israel together, and he kind of gave them a rah rah speech. He said, God appeared to me after 490 years. And we're going to do this thing. We're going to get out of here. I'm going to go with Aaron to Pharaoh, and we are going to get out of this place. To which the Israelites, at the end of chapter 4, worshipped God because they finally felt like God heard their plea. Like, I don't know if you ever felt that. Like, finally God has brought some deliverance. Like, God is doing that. And so the nation of Israel, there's this groundswell of reacting in praise and worship, and hope has come, and there's a future and a vision, and it is a high moment at the end of chapter 4. And then chapter 5 is terrible. It is. And let's look at it. Afterward, after that gathering of worship with the nation of Israel in Egypt, afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. And Pharaoh said, Okay. (laughs) Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. That's fair. Verse 3. Then they said, well, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. The king of Egypt said, and I understand his position because he doesn't know this Lord. He doesn't care about this. This could be any God for all he cares, and he's a pretty powerful man. So he says, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from what's most important, their labor? Get back to work. And then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. And so that same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people. He doubles down. He says, you are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Uh, Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before, and don't reduce the quota. They are lazy and that's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. And then, verse 10, the slave drivers and the foremen went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. And so the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw, and the slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you each day, just as when you had straw. And the Israelite foremen appointed by Pharaoh's slave drivers were beaten and were asked, Why didn't you meet your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? And so, stuck, verse 15, now, the Israelite foremen went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? 
Your servants are given no straw, and yet we're told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. And Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get back to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. He is angry with them. They had too much time to daydream in his mind. So verse 19, the Israelite foreman realized they were in trouble. They absolutely were. There was no other place to go to appeal, and there is no future hope here at all. They are in trouble. They went to the highest authority in the land, and he said, I don't care at all. This will continue indefinitely. They were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required each day. In verse 20, when they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And how do you think they feel toward Moses and Aaron who have started this whole thing? And they said, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now, I don't know if you have ever tried to motivate a group of people before but this is not where you want to be. Verse 22, Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. That's the end of chapter 5. This is terrible. Like, this is the absolute low point in the history of Israel's slavery in Egypt. They, they have no morale. They are being beaten. There is no hope for a future. And just a minute ago, at the end of chapter 4, they were excited that maybe we believe that God has finally spoken to Moses after almost 500 years where God hasn't spoken to anybody. Like, I'm willing to give you that part of my heart again to believe. Let's do it. Like I, let's do it. Let's, okay, okay, okay. We could hope again. And then chapter 5 comes in, and it's like, you're kidding. Like, this is it. This, this is all we have, and we have no hope for a future, no morale, no vision, no courage, and no future willingness to ever do this again. The best play is to make the best of a terrible situation. Slavery was bad enough. An inability to worship Yahweh was bad enough. But now... Now we're being beaten because we can't even make all the things we're supposed to make with materials that aren't being given to us, and there's no way that we see an end to this. This is the absolute, absolute low point for the people. And this is where, this is where, don't miss this, this is where the underdog story takes a turn. Like This is where, in chapter 6, God comes into the picture with such strength that I don't want you to miss it. This is where, if you're watching a movie, you ever seen underdog movies? They're kind of fun to watch and fun to see, and they're inspirational, heartwarming, sometimes tearjerkers, depending on if there's other guys in the room or not, all right? But listen, they're, they're, this is the moment. This is the moment where the scene is set, and we have dropped the plot structure as low as we can go. The people are down as far as they can go. There's no hope. And it's almost like, it's almost like... Um, Imagine a second or third grade basketball team has lost every game they've ever played. Like, this team is always losing everything. And all of a sudden, at halftime of this one game, they're losing again by 30 points at halftime, and they just expect we're going to keep losing again, and we're losing again. And then Michael Jordan walks back into the locker room in his prime. Or Kobe or LeBron or Steph Curry, whoever, walks into the locker room in their prime, and they're like, I'm going to suit up. I'm going to suit up. 
and listen, I'm going to suit up and we're going to win this thing. Like, wait a minute, really? Like, this is a little much for a second and third grade. Yeah, but listen, this is how much better I am. (laughs) This is how much strength God brings to the table compared to what we have. And so in walks, quote-unquote, at halftime, God walking into the locker room and saying, let me remind you who I am. Like, yes, you have lost, and yes, you have no morale, but let me remind you for a minute the strength that I possess, and now I want you to see, ah, now I want you to see what it means to be the Redeemer of my people. Look what he does in chapter 6. And then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Now you will see it. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. And God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. Very interesting statement. Like, did, not, did Moses not know that he was the Lord? <laughs> I am the Lord. I'm going to explain that in just a minute. He says, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens. This is the first time in the book of Exodus that God introduces himself this way. We use the Hebrew word right up here, you'll see it, Yahweh, right? That makes sense. Read it right to left. That little thing is a Y-H-W-H. In English, we'll write it this way, Yahweh. This is the first time. This is the covenant name of God. When God uses this name, he's always going to associate his covenant promises with this. He used it twice so far in Genesis, once so far in Exodus. This is the first time in Exodus. This is a a strong name of, you think Pharaoh has power, Moses? You think that people are discouraged? They are second graders, man. Come on. Like, I am Yahweh. And I bring with that name the weight of redemption that comes with that. I bring with that name the weight of promise that can never be broken. There is nothing that can get in my way. Are you kidding me, Moses? Like, I know you're down, and I know things are not going well, but I'm telling you, I am the Lord. And previously, I've introduced myself as God Almighty, or you might know if you're from church world, El Shaddai, or the God of the mountains. Previously, I've been known that way because I've met with the patriarchs in the mountains, but now... Moses, I am Yahweh. This name became so revered on the lips of the Israelites that they were afraid even to speak of it. And this is why it's not even written with consonants anymore, lest we take the name of the Lord in vain. This name is how God comes to the table and he says, this Moses, in this moment, this is who I am. And he continues in verse 5, Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Moses, I'm a covenant or a promise-keeping God. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. Moses, I am Yahweh. And I'm here in this moment, in the lowest point of the history now, the nation of Israel, to tell you, come on now, look at me. I am Yahweh. And I will do something. It will be so powerful 
to what is currently the world superpower that you will be left in awe. And so, Moses, verse 9, takes this news to the Israelites. He reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. And that is not surprising. Moses, we've heard this before. No more. Last time we hoped, we got beaten, and our workload got turned out twice as hard. No. I don't care who you said you've talked to. No. I heard Yahweh, no. And then, verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But, but Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me? since I speak with faltering lips? A great question. They mean, well, people don't care. Why? Pharaoh doesn't even know who you are. Why will this work? It just didn't work twice. It's a great question. God answers it in verse 1 of chapter 7. Look in chapter 7, verse 1. And then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. And then I'll lay down my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. And so Moses and Aaron, don't miss verse 6, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. And Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh, just at the prime of their lives. Isn't that amazing? This, I think, reveals the key to Moses' greatness Moses simply did what was right in front of him to do over and over and over and over and over again. Moses simply obeyed and took the next step. He had no real reason to believe that anything would change in the moment when he said yes to God. In fact, all that he had to believe was that the Israelites are already against me. They've turned hard against me. Pharaoh doesn't even know who you are. I don't speak well, and now you're commanding me to go speak to the most powerful man in the world to tell people who don't even like me or want me to do this to let them go, and they don't want me to go. He doesn't care about me. Why should I do this? But Moses, verse 6 of chapter 7 did just as the Lord commanded. And this is more powerful than we sometimes realize. I've said it before that the Christian life, and really all of life, but the Christian life especially is so difficult because it is so daily. Don't miss the power of that. Like what Moses did here, he didn't didn't even come up with a vision for this, right? Moses is not the architect of the Exodus, Moses was not the one who created the vision for this. He didn't systematize this. He didn't plan it. He didn't even dream this baby up. All that he did was obeyed God and took the next step. 
Like, he didn't see 10 years in the future. He saw like 10 minutes in the future. But he just did that. Okay, God, you're commanding me to go? Okay. Like, I'll, I'll just do the next thing that God puts like right in front of me. I'm just willing to lay my life down and say, even if it doesn't make sense, I'm going to hope again. Like, even if it doesn't make sense, I'm going to trust again. Even if it doesn't make sense, I'm going to respond again. I'm going to forgive again. I'm going to lead again. Even though there's great opposition, I'm discouraged. Nothing's going well. I really wish things would change. They're not. Moses didn't wait for the circumstances to change. He just is like, God, you want me to? I will. You want me to? I will. You want me to? I will. Even when it doesn't make sense? I will. I will. I will, I will. And this, I think, is the key to Moses' greatness. He just kept putting one faithful foot in front of the other over and 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 over again. And if you're a parent, you know that that is exactly what it takes to influence your children, right? Moments of great parenting are rarely made in one moment, but they are made in the regular deposits over and 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 over again. And this is what Moses did. What happens next are the stories that are told for generations and told, told to children for, forever and ever, and they're great stories of the plagues, and they're fascinating. Um, they're fascinating events that happen. <laughs> By fascinating, I mean terrible uh, to be on the receiving end of the plagues because Moses goes to Pharaoh, and uh, he says, let him go. Pharaoh said, I don't think so, to which Moses uh, has Aaron throw his staff down on the ground. It turns into a snake, and then Mo- Pharaoh's like, hey, my magician people, you guys come in, throw your staffs down, and they did, and they turned into snakes too, which was great. But then Aaron's staff, Aaron's snake, now ate all of their snakes and their staff. Like, huh, that's interesting. Like, I might start to think twice about that if my staff just got eaten by your staff. Like, no, all right. Didn't do much for Pharaoh. He's like, whatever, get out of here. So, and then enter the first plague. And the first plague is the, the plague of the Nile being turned into blood. And so uh, Pharaoh's magicians could do the same thing. So Pharaoh's like, I don't care about this. This is not impacting me. You're talking about, again, in Pharaoh's mind, you got about 2 million people in the nation of Israel. Let's just say at least half of them are working age. You've got about at least a million people who are working, essentially for free, on your infrastructure, on building cities and on building your empire. And you will not let them go for nothing. Like that, that is a big, big ask. That's incredible. Now he's like, no, I don't care. You can turn Nile to blood. I can do it too. Right? And so then Pharaoh does that. And then uh, we have the next plague coming in as the frogs. Like frogs show up everywhere. And this is insanity. Frogs in your living room, in your bedroom, in the oven, I suppose, maybe in the microwave. I don't know where the frogs are showing up. Okay? And so the, all these frogs come. And uh, you know, Pharaoh's like, we can do this too. No big deal, whatever. And so then the frogs all die. And they get the stench carries on forever. So whatever. I don't care. I'm not interested in doing anything. The third plague is the plague of gnats. This is, this, man, this would be a powerful moment because the way that the, the, this frames up in the scripture, it's like Moses took some dust or some charcoal or whatever, and he comes into the presence of Pharaoh, and he goes, and then there's gnats everywhere. Isn't that kind of cool? It'd be kind of a cool moment of like, and then the gnats show up everywhere. That's just the way it reads in the scripture. Like he, he tosses up this dust or this charcoal in the middle, in the, in the sight of Pharaoh. And on that cue, gnats show up everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And the magicians could not replicate this. And here's the first uh, interesting thing. The magicians tell Pharaoh on this, they said, Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. They said that in chapter 8. This is the finger of God. Pharaoh said, I don't care. His heart was hard and he wouldn't listen. And then after the gnats come the flies, where the flies just come everywhere. At this point, after the flies, 
Pharaoh agrees to let the people go, and then he changes his mind. Then we get into the fifth, fifth plague, and that is all the livestock of the Egyptians die, and none of the livestock of the uh, Israelites die. As these compound, this gets increasingly more difficult upon the infrastructure and the people, the nation of Egypt. Imagine all of your cattle dying across the nation. Number six plague is the boils. The boils come in, and I don't know if you ever had chicken pox or anything like that that actually impacts your skin, but this is what happens next. Boils across the nation. No real reaction yet from Pharaoh. And finally, in the, the seventh uh, plague is a plague of hail. Um, and at this point, Pharaoh begins to crack. And we see this in chapter 9. He says, this time I have sinned. He calls Moses and Aaron in. Because this hail destroys people. destroys anything that's living. It strips the trees of any fruit that they had. Like the, the, and the crops are gone. So now we're talking about livestock already gone. And your agricultural system in ruins. And people who are in the fields are dying. And so... Pharaoh's like, um, this time I've sinned. Pray to the Lord for me. We'll let you go. Don't stay any longer. But at this point, Pharaoh's gone too far, and God actually hardens his heart where he changes his mind again because God isn't done being Yahweh on this one. Like He's not done bringing the punishment to Egypt that they deserve for what they have done. And so, yep, we've done that, but we are not done yet with this process. So the hail comes, and then after the hail, Pharaoh changes his mind. And then... Moses comes back in, and now we have locusts going everywhere. And locusts come in and ravage anything that's left on the ground from the hail. By the way, the other night in our home, we had a um, cicada, I think, uh, in our house, which was kind of neat little experiences. I think they call for a mate, if I'm not mistaken, like chirp away fairly loud. And so it, that was helpful because it called me to it, and then it met the bottom of my sandal pretty easily and pretty well. Bam! And I thought, well, there's only one of those babies in here, but I cannot imagine if there was, uh, if my lawn was covered with locusts or cicadas or that kind of thing. It actually was looking to eat. I mean, that would be insanity. It would be crazy, right? It'd just be crazy. And that's what happens here. And so Moses or Pharaoh again says, "I've sinned. Come, you know, uh, take your people and go." And he and then he changes his mind again because again, God isn't done yet with the power of Yahweh on the people of Egypt. He's just not done yet with that. And then he brings one more plague, the plague of darkness in chapter 10 and verse 24, that Pharaoh is now getting angry at the end of this plague where it's just pitch black for days and people can't see a single thing. Pharaoh calls in Moses and says, Moses, enough, get your people out of here. If I see your face again, I'm going to kill you. To which Moses is like, have it your way. We won't meet again. Have it your way. And then Pharaoh says, go ahead and take him. And then he changes his mind one last time, which brings the final hammer of God on this one, honestly. And this is what initiates what Jews now call the Passover and celebrate as a Passover. But this initiates the final plague, and that is the angel of God coming and striking down, killing the firstborn of every uh, member of the Egyptian household, any uh, home that didn't have the blood across the doorpost. And so all night in the nation of Egypt, there is wailing with the firstborn being, being killed including Pharaoh's own, to which in the middle of the night, Moses gets a phone call from Pharaoh and says, I'm done. I'm done now. Get your people out of here. And God, Yahweh, has so brought his power of redemption and judgment, so brought his strength into this nation of Egypt, that that nation that was the world power is absolutely devastated economically, agriculturally, in its leadership, in its vision, in its morale. Because now is the time for Yahweh to show up in his greatness, which he 
does. And in chapter 13, we get a picture of the nation of Israel leaving and marching out. And Flip over there with me, chapter 13 and verse 17. And when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter, for God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. And so God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Imagine about two million people armed for battle. And look what happens in verse 19. This is pretty profound. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Joseph died in Egypt. And he said, listen, when, when, when you all leave here, take me with you. Now, this is hundreds and hundreds of years later. And this is a story that would have been told by generation upon generation upon generation. Now, it is actually happening. We are taking the bones of Joseph, who had been buried forever. Who would have ever thought that we would be the people to take Joseph's bones out of here? We are doing that. We're taking Joseph's bones out of here because we had sworn that we would do that. And that is what's happening as these people are leaving. Now, if you know the story, you know they're not totally out of the woods yet. Look over to chapter 14, verse 10. Because Pharaoh, I believe again through the prompting of God, decides to send his people after him and changes his mind once again because God isn't totally done yet with the devastation that comes. Chapter 14, verse 10, Pharaoh approached with his army trying to essentially get the Israelites back. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. And they were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? That's a great statement to make to your leader. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Still not quite believing that this is happening. And then Moses' response is very interesting. He says, verse 13, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. That is true. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Now, this is interesting, by the way. A little bit of a sidebar, but when you study the Scriptures, read the Scriptures, and engage in the Bible, just be sure that you keep things in context. Some people like to take this little verse, verse 14, out, just pull it, like, pull it right out of the text and just say, like, this is the way you should live your life. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. And that, that, that's good. Like on a calendar, that's pretty good, right? Like on Facebook thing, that's pretty good. Instagram, that's a pretty good thing, right? It's just not complete. Look at verse 15, because the Lord of life for you need only be still. And then look what God says, look at verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. <laughs> like, don't be still, you dummies. Don't just sit there. Move. Now, I will fight for you, right? Like, I'm going to take care of this, but don't just sit around. Like, move, please don't. Why are you crying out to me? You have time. You have time, but move it. Move it. Get going. And so they get going. They get moving. God does absolutely fight for them, and he does absolutely destroy the Egyptians. Because look at verse 29. When the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left, that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed among, against the Egyptians, the people, and here's the result, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. 
Okay. Now, what can we say about this? I asked you at the beginning, what does it mean to be great? What does it mean to be great? And here's what I want to say about Moses' greatness. All right? Moses' greatness was putting one obedient foot in front of the other over and over and over again. That's all that I think Moses did. And by all, I mean, that's amazing. Because I don't know if you've ever felt discouraged in your pursuit of what you think God wants you to do. Have you ever been in a position where you feel like this isn't working? I am not getting anywhere. My marriage is going this way. My relationship is going left. I want it to go right. Like my future isn't clear. I thought I kind of made a deal with God when I would do this and he would bless. I didn't think that tragedy would come in my family. I didn't think that sickness would come into my family or into me. Like I didn't think that would be part of my future. And that is the low point of the nation of Israel. That's the low point of Moses at the end of chapter 5. God, you said you were a redeemer. We got all excited about that. And now there is massive opposition. And God says to Moses, uh, okay, do you remember who I am? <laughs> I'm Yahweh. Are, are we having this conversation, Moses? Like, this is who I am. I bring the weight of my authority and promises and care to you as a people. Yeah, Go. Take the next step, Moses. I know that people don't like you. I know they're not going to respond. I know that Pharaoh isn't even going to respond. I know that, but I don't care. Like, go, Moses. And the power and the greatness for Moses is the profound reality that he just put one obedient foot in front of the other. He did not create the Exodus. He didn't engineer it, design it, or even dream it up. He was simply and profoundly obedient over and over and over and over and over again, which is amazing. And that is why we are still talking about Moses today. Now, God's greatness, God's greatness is found in the power to save and redeem no matter what. God's greatness is found in that power to save and redeem no matter what. And God's work in the Exodus becomes the primary metaphor for God's saving work in the entire Bible. People that don't even know the Bible, that don't read about the Bible, or don't come to church forever, that's, like, that's fine. We welcome you, absolutely welcome you. We love to have you here, and here's why. Because we want you to see and experience this God that we are trying to get to know. Because this God is a redeeming God, and you may have heard the story of the Exodus already, and the reason you heard that is because this is the primary way, primary metaphor image that we use to communicate our God is a redeeming, powerful God. Like, what can get in his way? What, what can get in his way of redeeming and saving you? What can do that? What, what sin can you conceive of where God will be like, I forgive most things, but not you. Really, you did that? Like, I can redeem a whole nation and turn a powerhouse upside down and ravage them economically and socially and politically and everything that they get wiped off the planet. I can do that, but I can't forgive you because you lied again. Really? Like, God's greatness in his redemption and his salvation, salvific power is so profound that this is why when Jesus comes to die on the cross, he is our ultimate redeemer, our ultimate savior, embodying Yahweh to us. God's greatness is in this power, and this is why we come to him. This is why we can even look at each other with all of our brokenness together and be like, man, yeah, well, I'm broken, you're broken, man, welcome to the club. But listen, we serve... God, whose power to redeem is profound and will not, will not be stopped. 
His covenant promises, His guarantees will not be stopped. I don't care what you do. I don't care how bad it is. It will not be stopped. He is the greatest. That's what He shows us in the Exodus. And so if you're discouraged, if you feel like you've gone too far in high school or in college, or if you feel like you can never get back on track, if you feel like God will never forgive somebody else who you hold a grudge against, I'm going to tell you that's just not going to be true. That God is a God in the business of redemption, in the business of rebuilding hope, no matter what. That is the story of the Exodus. And finally, let me encourage you this way. Let me encourage you this way. Keep doing the next thing that the Great One wants you to do. Keep doing the next thing that Yahweh, the Great One, wants you to do. Simple as that. It's a simple power of saying, yep, I'll do that. Alyssa Clemmer was standing here a few minutes ago. Yeah, I'll go to Costa Rica. What's going to be the future? I don't know. Are you going to go? Yeah, I'll go. Just keep doing it. I just keep putting that one faithful step in front of the other. So for some of you, that's like I'm in a relationship that might not be quite right, and I think I probably should move out of it. But if I do, that means that I'll be in pain, and I don't know if that's a good idea. But like, listen, keep doing one faithful thing in front of the other. And by the way, that doesn't guarantee comfort. Everybody knows <laughs> that achieving greatness always comes with pain, not with comfort, right? Achieving greatness always comes with pain, not with comfort. The greatest things that you've ever done, ever participated in, don't come because they've been easy, but because they've been very difficult. And putting one obedient foot in front of the other is in that category. It is going to be hard to obey and do the things that you know that God wants you to do. Forgiveness is hard, right? Leadership is hard. Service is hard. This is the way it is. I just want to encourage you. This is the story of Moses' greatness. A guy who had faltering lips, couldn't quite figure out what to do, saw the people of Israel against him, by the way, all the way through the plagues, we believe that the nation of Israel was like, this is craziness. This is getting worse. Moses, why do you keep coming? Like the opposition is profound for him. He's like, I, I, like, I'm compelled by obedience to do things that I don't even really want to do, to be honest with you. Like I'm telling God, send somebody else. I don't want to do this, but I must. And God uses people like that who are like, I don't know the future, right? Like I don't know where this goes, but he uses people whose greatness is found in just saying, yeah, yep, okay, the next one in front of the other. Now, Moses puts those feet in front of the other, leads to the greatest success of his life and also in God's redemptive history. But then after that, there's a story after that too. The story never ends at the climax and at the high point. It always comes with complications on the downswing. And those complications we are going to talk about next week in Moses chapter 4. Be glad to have you with us. Let's pray. Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to be in your word and to see the story of the Exodus again this morning and to be reminded of your great power and your great strength as a covenant-making and promise-keeping God. I pray for us this morning if we have lost hope or lost belief in the strength and power of your name, if we have been discouraged for a long season of life, if we feel like things will never change in our families or in the way that we're living right now, in our roommate situation or in the, uh, the next steps we're making for college or a new uh, career or, or welcoming children or whatever situation of life that we are in. I 
pray that you would again remind us, you are the Lord. You are Yahweh. We can trust you. And so help us to take the difficult step of just yielding, obeying you. One step in front of the other. Father, we long to have you move in us in this way, that our hearts, our lives, can be turned over and over and over to you. That the story of our lives becomes a story of you, just like the story of Moses' life is a story of the God who worked through him. Thank you for your care for us and your love and patience with us. We pray for courage to take our next steps. In Jesus' name we pray.